0: We've been going through Luke for a while now, and now we're going to get to probably the most famous sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, or for Luke, it's the Sermon on the Plateau. Let me read Luke chapter 6, beginning of verse 17. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear Him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch Him, for power came out from Him and He healed them all. And He lifted up His eyes on His disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Father, I ask that you would honor the very reading of your word, that you would come and you would speak through me, that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, let your words remain and may they change us. Pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Almost everybody is familiar um, with this sermon um, this, uh, I mean, whether you're a Christian or not, you've heard parts of this. I actually, I was going over my notes over the years, and I've never once taught from this, though. I think because it's, you know, it's so famous, it's, it's what everybody thinks of, uh, and it's intimidating, it's convicting, it's mysterious, and all those things. So, in over ten years of a preaching ministry, I've never once preached through the Beatitudes. You know, in my home group that meets on Wednesday nights, we discuss the sermon from Sunday, and um, it's always a little awkward because, I mean, the pastor's there, and so somebody says, you know, what do you think of the sermon? And you're like, you know, nobody's being honest. Um... Uh, you know, but, you know, I'm hoping and expecting those things like, man, it was life-changing, you know, it was, wow, never heard anything like that, or, you know, I'm quitting my job, moving to Uganda because of that message. You, you, you know, as a pastor, you want to hear that, but, but sometimes, not often, but sometimes, somebody from the group will say, what, what was the sermon on? What was the text? Somebody will mention it, Luke 5. Oh, yeah, that, that sounds vaguely familiar. Yeah, okay, you know, and I just kind of shrivel down and but nobody for 2000 years has forgotten this sermon you go back and you go through all of the church fathers and almost every single one of them comment on this there's there's 2000 years of discussion from this sermon it was so radical so countercultural it stuck And Jesus here, he turns the world's values completely upside down. We need to understand this sermon in context. It's Jesus' first sermon to his disciples. Um, He went up to the mountain to pray. He prayed all night. And then after he prayed, he picked 12 people. Twelve apostles. Now, he had a lot more disciples than this. You know, we find out later he even sends out 70 of his disciples. He's got a lot of disciples, but he narrows it down to these 12 will have a special relationship with me. And so he picks them and then he, he comes down and then he heals everyone from their diseases. People just want to touch him to feel the power come from him. And then he has people sit down and he addresses, I'm sure the, the 12 are there, then all the disciples. Then he have people from Tyre and Sidon on the outskirts there and he addresses them. And I'm sure the atmosphere is absolutely electric because here Jesus is starting the revolution they've been waiting for. It looks like he's finally organizing it. He's gathered all of his disciples. He's come down from the mountain. He's appointed the officers. So it's about time to get things going. And Jesus, he does start a revolution, but it's through community. That's what this sermon is about. What does the community that Jesus bring look like? What does it look like? He explains the values of the kingdom of God. He explains exactly what they are to think, what they are to believe now that they are His disciples. And it turns everything upside down. I think a good way to understand what's going on here is if you go back into Exodus, when, when Moses went up to the mountain, he received the law of God, And He came down to the people and He gave it to them. Now these people were already saved. They were already redeemed. And He gave them this law to form a new community. So this is going to set you apart from all the other nations. This is going to form your identity right here. And Jesus is doing the same thing. He goes up on the mountain and then He comes down and in a sense gives this law. This is the new law of the kingdom. It's not for salvation. He doesn't even prescribe anything first in these Beatitudes. He just tells things the way they are. This is reality. This is what it looks like to be part of this new community in which you have been saved into. Just as the law was given not to save, but to show the people God's heart, it's the same here. God is showing you his heart, the things he values. You've got to understand this sermon and and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount in the context of community. If you notice, in the blessings and the woes that we just read, Jesus is describing things. He's not prescribing things, He's describing. He's not giving you a list of here's what you need to do, you need to become poor. You need to become hungry. You, you know, you need to make sure people insult. He doesn't say that. He's simply describing the things that God now values. What God says is blessed, which is completely different than what the world sees as blessed. You know, next time you're at Walmart, I dare any of you to do this. You know, and you're at the checkout line, and usually when I go, the cashier says, when I leave, have a blessed day. I don't know if, if you get that or not. I'm sure you get it somewhere. Have a blessed day. I dare any of you to stop next time and go, really? Have a blessed day. So are you saying that you want me to be poor? That you want me to be hungry? Is that what you're saying? That you want you know me when I go to the car for people to revile me and persecute me? Is that really what you're asking? And they'll look at you absolutely you know, insane. I, I mean, personally, I would want a woeful day. I would rather them say, have a woeful day. You know, be rich, be prosperous. May people speak well of you. Those are what we consider blessings. And Jesus says, no, those are woes. So the next time I'm at Walmart and they say, have a blessed day, you say, you have a woeful day. You know, and see if they get it. They're just going to stare at you blankly. But I know that in my life, when I look at these lists, I know what I want. I know what I consider a blessing. And Jesus' words still cut me. And they have for 2,000 years. This is radical. I mean, this is seriously radical. Look what Jesus values. Poverty. Hunger. Mourning. Persecution. Try to go to Barnes & Noble's and find a book about a success story in which that's what the person finally achieves in their life. You know, the the story about some well-respected man or woman who lost it all and now people hate him and now he's so poor and he weeps all the time. Success story. Blessed. You're not going to find it. It's radical. Look at the very first beatitude. Blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. And now the word blessed, it means to have a deep satisfaction. A deep satisfaction. And, and you know you have favor with God. So you have favor with God and you have a deep satisfaction. So Jesus is saying, those who are poor are deeply satisfied. Those who are poor have favor with God. And in the Gospel of Matthew, he adds um, blessed are the poor in spirit instead of just Luke's blessed are the poor. I believe they're actually talking about the same thing here. There's a lot of that's been written about the differences between those two. But Luke is not saying salvation is on, you know, some economic sliding scale. He's not saying that, you know, the the richer you are, the the less saved you are, and the poorer you are, the more saved. He's not saying that. You're going to see throughout the book of Luke that poor people come to know Jesus, rich people come to know Jesus. Luke is not saying that if you're physically poor, God loves you more. What he's talking about here is spiritual poverty. Remember, he's addressing his disciples here. These are his disciples. He's not talking to everyone. Now, a lot of these disciples were physically poor and what you would call spiritually poor. They were physically poor because a lot of them gave up everything to follow Jesus. He's saying, blessed are you. And, and Luke, he kind of weds the two together, because often it is the physically poor who are the spiritually poor, because well, they just understand things better. They're, they're more likely to depend on mercy. They're more likely to see that they're powerless. They're more likely to understand the gospel. When he says poor, I think you should understand that as that is somebody who is spiritually bankrupt, who sees themselves as spiritually or, or morally bankrupt, To be poor is to recognize you have nothing to offer. That when you look at yourself, you realize there is nothing good in you. That you're poor. The tax collector who went and he beat his chest and he said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, he is poor in spirit. He has nothing to offer. And when Jesus sees a person like that, he says, You know what? That's the kind of person that's blessed. That's the person God values. I kind of think of it as the, uh, you know, the upside down of Oprah Winfrey. You know, everything kind of Oprah Winfrey teaches or the people she has on her show, you got you to gotta kind of flip that upside down. You know, being blessed does not come by thinking a lot of yourself. Get the self-esteem. You can become a better person. You've got a lot to offer. Jesus says, no, those people aren't blessed. People are blessed who realize they have nothing to offer God. In verse 22, Jesus says what he doesn't value. 24, he said he doesn't value riches. Now, the rich are those who are spiritually confident, those who think highly of themselves, those who think themselves righteous or morally superior to others. And often it is the physically rich because they're used to getting their own way. They're used to, you know, I'm a self made man. They're used to that. So often the two go together. But Jesus says, woe to you. Woe to you who think you're righteous. Woe to you who think you can work your way into heaven. Woe to you who think just because you help the poor, God owes you heaven. Woe to you who give to charities. And you give so just so you think God will be pleased with you. Woe to you. You've got nothing to offer. Jesus says that the rich have received their consolation. Which means that the rich have already gotten their payment in full. They've gotten their payment in full. What Jesus is saying is if you set your heart and you make the values, your values, the the values of this world, that's what you're seeking, you know what? You're going to get it. You're going to get what you strive for. But that's all you're going to get. Riches is your goal and you're going to seek it hard. You know what? You're probably going to get rich, but that's all you're going to get. You know, if you set your heart to uh, you know, give money to the poor, give to all these charities so you could get this feel-good feeling or so that people will recognize you, you know what? You'll get that. But it's all you're going to get. Jesus blesses the poor. Next, Jesus says, bless... Blessed are you who are hungry, for you shall be satisfied. Once again, there's this physical and spiritual element to this. For often the real hungry become spiritually hungry hungry because they cry out to God, help me, help me. Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew adds hunger and thirst for righteousness, which is the point. It's just like Psalm 42, as a deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for thee. It's this Longing those who long for the Lord are satisfied are blessed. And so we live in this Christian life that is both it should be both where you 're full and you're hungry. it's both. You want to be filled with God 's spirit, but you always want more of his spirit. You want to know God, but you always want to know him more. and all you have to do is read through Paul's letters, and there's times where he says, "I know good, I know God, I know whom I have believed in. I know him." And then to the Philippians, he'll say, to know Him. I want to know Him. He both wants to know God, and he knows God. He's satisfied, yet he's still hungry. God calls those people blessed. But then He says, woe to the person who's satisfied. Woe to the person who has stuffed themselves with the things of this world. Who stuffs themselves with entertainment. (laughs) Who who stuffs themselves with worldly pleasures and they're just feeding and they're feeding and they've lost all appetite for God. Woe. Verse 21 says, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Verse 25 says, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. I've thought about this one probably more than any of the others this week Jesus says that there is weeping in his kingdom there is real grief and there is real mourning it's present tense though when he says blessed are you in the midst of this you know when you're hungry or when you're poor when you're not enjoying comforts that other people are enjoying there can be grief there can be sorrow and he says that's real it says, but in the midst of all of this, there's this deep satisfaction. Now, I want to be crystal clear that you, you don't seek grief. I don't want you to go out here and think, I need to seek opportunities to weep. You know, I need to, to, you know, to hit myself or you know, do put myself in horrible situations. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that part of life, grief comes but you don't see grief. You don't weep the way the world weeps. When you see it, you see that God is blessing you. He is blessing you. God values weeping. and So you don't run from it. You trust God through it. You know, in thinking through really all these beatitudes, but I'll just use Weeping. You've been given an incredible gift in this life, which I think is part of the blessing. When you get to heaven, you will worship God, of course, but you will worship Him in wealth. You will worship Him in full comfort and satisfaction. You will worship Him with every tear dried and gone. And there will be no persecution. There will be no exclusion because you'll be included into the family of God. You'll worship him in this perfect environment. But now you have this gift. It's the only time that you will ever be able to worship God with tears. It's the only time you will ever have. It's the only time you will ever have to worship God in the midst of poverty or hunger or persecution. You'll never have that again. And so when, when those times come, when sorrows come, you don't shun it. You see, it is, this is a gift that I will not have for the rest of eternity. A gift to worship God in the midst of grief and sorrow. How precious that is. That's why God says, blessed are you when you're weeping. This is a gift. It's a gift that won't last for long. And when Jesus says, woe to those who laugh now, He's not saying, God doesn't want you to laugh. You know, if y'all laugh God's against you, you know, and uh, you're all to be depressed and gloomy Christians. Um, Robert Louis Stevenson is one of my favorite authors, and I was reading in his diary, um, he said, I went to church today, and I'm not depressed. (laughs) And he wrote, surprise! He was just so used to going to church and leaving so depressed, being around other Christians. And that's not what Jesus is saying here. Uh, The laughter here... um, The rest of Scripture is used as a mocking. It's a mocking. Daryl Bach has probably the best commentary on Luke, and he says that you should see this laughter, you should translate it gloating. Gloating. It's the laughter of people who think they've won. This is the mocking laughter that people give when they think they're so much better, they're glad they didn't waste the time on what you've done, they're successful and they mock you. Jesus says, woe to you who think you're so successful that you can gloat over others. Look at the final beatitude in verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and when they revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Now, I've known a lot of Christians who really love to cling to this verse. Um, They're the Christians who, you know, they wear the Christian t-shirt, they go into the workplace, they start pointing out all the sins of their co-workers, start calling them evil, you know, Sabbath breakers, you know, you're in an adulterous relationship, you know, all this. And, and, And... and the people you know, at the workplace go, you're such a jerk. And they're like, persecuted for the Lord. That's what's happening right here. And I'm like, no, you're actually just a jerk. That's what it is. You are a jerk. You're a pompous, righteous, self-righteous jerk. And, and, and don't think that that's what Jesus is talking about. That you can go out to the street with a bullhorn and yell at people and think, oh man, I get persecuted. He's saying persecuted for, for my name's sake, for the, for the son of man. That's what you're to be persecuted for. Not for being a jerk. That's not being blessed. But you will be reviled. Reviled. If you really hold to the values of the Son of Man. Uh, I was listening to uh, Sports Talk Radio this past week on the way to some meeting, and it's the SEC Media Days. And uh, Mark Rick. Um, coach for the University of Georgia, best school there is. Um, he, he was being interviewed, and Mark Richt, he's a Christian, and the person interviewing him was actually a couple of guys interviewing. Him. They said, you know, you, you know, people just kind of think you're perfect. You know, do you sin? And he goes, Yeah, because I've got a lot of deep sins. So you know, I struggle with pride terribly, you know, with lust. You know, and, and they picked up on that, and and he said, actually, I, I have a group of guys who ask me a question every every single week. They ask me questions, and they 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 say, you know, have you lusted after a woman? Every week, I get asked that question, and he's talking to the interviewers about this, and they kind of nod, and they're uncomfortable, and then they leave. And, and when they when they left, and they they even acknowledged we were uncomfortable because he looked us in the eye and he said these things, um, but. They leave, and then they totally mocked him. It's unbelievable. They just mocked, and they mocked. They said, I mean, if that's sin, who can keep that sin? That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Nobody holds to this. And one guy goes, you know, I mean, if I see a good-looking woman, I'm going to look twice. There's nothing wrong with that. And they mocked. That's what Jesus is talking about. Mark Rick. He didn't say one negative word. He, he didn't get one stone and throw it at him. But simply because of what he believed and his character, these people felt condemned. Simply by being around him, they felt judged, and so they, their only option was either to repent or to mock, and they mocked. It's the same as if you're single and, you know, you believe that, no, your sex is for marriage and so you wait. Well, the friends that you have who don't believe that, their options are either, well, I need to change or I could just kind of make fun of you for what you believe. But that just that you hold to that condemns them and they revile you even when you don't say a negative word. You know, the values of Jesus are so contrary to the world's values. Just know if you hold them, you will be persecuted. Martin Luther said that was a mark of the church, persecution. The St. Augsburg Confession, or the Augsburg Confession, it defines church as the community of those who are persecuted and those who are martyred for the gospel. That's what the church is. Paul just says, if you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. But after this, Jesus gives the only command, that's in the Beatitudes. He says, when this happens, rejoice. That's a command. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy. Celebrate. But woe to you people who, who, when everybody speaks so well of you. I'm just going to read these Beatitudes again. Ask God to show you where you land. I tell you, I cannot tell you how many times I've read through them. Where, where, when I look at my life, I think, where do I land? And it's been painful. Now, probably nobody here is on either extreme. There's probably a lot that are kind of on the fence. But you Are you a blessed person or are you one whom Jesus would say, woe is you? Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And I would say the woes afterwards, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Woe to you, When all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Pray with me. Lord, I pray that you would show us where we are on that. You're the king. You brought in a new administration. With every new administration, there's new things that are valued and there's new things that are discarded. This is what you value poverty, hunger, being persecuted, mourning. What you see as pitiable or woeful, or riches, comfort, mocking, laughter. And people speaking well of us. Lord I pray that we would. Value what you value. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.